to start off with a disclaimer this morning. Uh-oh. It's going to be a very different kind of Advent message today. Third Sunday of Advent is the Sunday of joy. Sunday of joy. But we're going to approach joy from a whole different angle this morning. And uh, so, as I begin during the next couple of minutes uh, as I speak, what I'd like you to do is to concentrate intently on what I'm saying, but also at the same time, I'd like you to tune your ears into the sounds that, that occur around you, okay? Let's take a minute and pray. Oh, Lord in heaven, speak to us. Our hearts are open and our minds are like a sponge, ready to absorb all that you have for us today. We concentrate, Lord, on this word that you have given to us as a gift. We want to know just exactly what you want to say to us through it. We love you, and we praise you for this time of year. And in the midst of all that we're going through, may we have that deep-seated, rooted joy of the Lord, which is our strength. Or ask it in the precious name of your son, Jesus, whom we celebrate today. Amen. Well, when Reformed theologian and Ligonier Ministries founder R.C. Sproul was once asked what he had wanted written on his tombstone, he replied cheekily, I told you I was sick. (laughs) Well, R.C. Sproul... 78 years old, passed away this past Thursday. And from the Ligonier Facebook page, the news read, the Sproul family had shared the sad news with us that our founder, Dr. R.C. Sproul, went home to be with the Lord this afternoon. And a story on on the ministry's webpage says Sproul's wife and family were with him when he passed in his hospital room. And quote was, he died peacefully, after being hospitalized 12 days ago due to severe respiratory difficulties exacerbated by the flu and complicated by chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, COPD. So when I, when I first gave you that news, did you hear it? Did you hear the sound? The sigh? The groans? The other day I heard the same sound when the news of yet another attempted New York City bombing was broadcast. An equally audible gas swept the nation when months ago a series of hurricanes demolished a huge area of the state of Texas and decimated an entire island. And I read an article yesterday that said they're still without power. Three months later, no power. You hear the sigh? The sound rang out again when the news came that two more of our people battle with groans of cancer. I detected it when I spoke with a member of our church yesterday after the passing of her mother. I hear it emanating from my own heart almost every time another prayer request comes across my inbox that someone in our congregation is in the midst of a very trying time. Groaning, deep sighing. I felt it during the week of Thanksgiving when I conducted two very different funeral services, seeing the grief of two spouses now widowed 
their families and their friends groping for words, reaching for comfort, frustrated at the brevity of life's beauty. I sighed as I typed these words and thought about many of the struggles that some of you have encountered over the last year. Many of you have encountered quite a bit of struggle and grief and sighing, groans. I'm sure you've had your share. I have as well. In the words of another fellow groaner, if you have teenagers, you've probably sighed yourself. If you tried to resist temptation, you've probably sighed. If you've had your motives questioned or your best acts of love rejected, you have been forced to take a deep breath and let escape a painful sigh. This same man described our groaning and sighing as a hybrid of frustration and sadness. It lies somewhere between a fit of anger and a burst of tears. You know what I'm talking about, don't you? In fact, I'll, I'll bet just the mere mention of it makes you want to take a deep breath and lay out a long sigh. But it's okay. Go ahead and do it. Take a deep breath. Breathe in. Let it out. It's all right. Groaning is not a sin. Actually, it happens as a result of what sin has caused. The Apostle Paul knew all about this and smack dab in the middle of Romans chapter 8, right between the truth that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus in verse 1, and the promise that, that there will be no separation, that nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord in verse 39, comes the reality of our present frustration in verses 18 to 25. And that's where I'd like you to turn this morning, if you would. And I will warn you again that this is not your typical Advent or Christmas passage. But believe it or not, it is the reason Christ came. And it is the milieu into which he was born. Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 18. Paul writes, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed in us and to us. For the anxious longing of the creation awaits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but also we ourselves having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance, we wait eagerly for it. Hey, we groan, we grieve, we want something better. According to this chapter, Romans 8, it's not just us, but the whole creation groans waiting for God to reverse the trend of physical disintegration. 
The Spirit also groans inside of us as Christ followers as he interprets our prayers. If we were to go on in this passage, we'd see that. I can't help but think that all of this groaning is for the simple reason that life was never meant to be this way. Cornelius Plantinga wrote a book called Not the Way It's Supposed to Be, a breviary on sin. It's a great book if you're into theological philosophy. But I love the title, Not the Way It's Supposed to Be. I've come to realize that the thoughts of a fellow groaner are indeed true. We're not supposed to be alienated from God. Creation was never meant to decompose, disintegrate, and be overrun by evil. And God never intended for us to depend upon an interpreter when we speak with him. That's not how it was in the beginning. We were never meant to die. Unfortunately, our sin caused that. Hence, we groan. But heaven is the complete reversal of all of that. That's when all of our earthly groaning and sighing and spiritual longing will give way to laughter and fulfillment. In a word, joy. Amen? Luke chapter 6, verse 21 says, Blessed are you who hunger now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Hold on to that. If you've had a bad year, hold on to that. Because here's the deal. True joy comes only as the result of hearing God's voice in the midst of our pain and deciding to live in obedient response to him. He can restore our joy and renew our strength. And rest assured, no matter how dark your cave, he will find you there. No matter how deep your abyss, he will descend to it. No matter how cold and lonely your prison may seem, he can release you. He is a relentless pursuer of his people. This is the Christmas story. This is the good news that the kingdom of God has come near. This is the message that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am foremost of all. As Paul wrote to Timothy. This is the good news of great joy which was delivered by the angel to the shepherds and it was not just for them but for all the people that in the midst of a world turned in on itself focused almost entirely on itself in the city of David there has been born for you a savior who is Christ the Lord. Yet before all that good news of great joy was given to the shepherds There was much disruption in the life of a young couple from Nazareth in Galilee, wasn't there? In the days between Gabriel's announcement of the pregnancy and the actual birth itself, Mary and Joseph endured much in the way of sorrow and suffering and groaning and sighing from people's heartless and callous reactions to them, their judgmental whispers and raised eyebrows, to say nothing of the journey over hostile and rough terrain only to find a city swelled with people, no available lodging, save a cave spotted with urine and carpeted with animal feces, acting as a birthing room for a king. Mary could not have anticipated that. Yet, through her trust in the God who does the impossible, 
Mary responded to her pregnancy and her cousin's greetings with majestic humility, revealing that even in the midst of her impending difficulties, she still possessed joy. In Luke chapter 1, in verse 46, we have this amazing response of Mary. We have come to know it as the Magnificat. Mary said, my soul exalts the Lord and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. For he has had regard for the humble state of his bond slave. For behold, from this time forward on, all generations will count me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me and holy is his name. And it goes on from there. How would you and I have responded to that news that Mary had? Teenage girl, single, never knowing a man, pregnant. Now, these days, we don't even bat an eye at that. That was not the case back in Nazareth, Galilee. In a post I ran across a few Christmases ago, entitled, Through and Beyond Suffering, the Joy of Christmas, the author wrote, the problem with Christmas these days isn't with Jesus, it's with us. More precisely, it's with our great expectations, to borrow a phrase from Charles Dickens. When something painful happens, one's instinct is to be outraged, as though the universe had made a mistake. But there has been no mistake. We have been created to know joy, yes, but we also are to know misery. You see, the utopian vision neglects the fact that this is a fallen world and a fallen world is filled with human suffering and that's something we don't want to think about, especially at Christmas time. But you can't understand Christmas, he says, if you ignore human suffering. Think of the words of some of the carols we actually sing that we even sang this morning. The hopes and fears of all the years. Or, O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here. Think of the pain of Joseph who first thought that Mary had been unfaithful to him. Think of all the mothers in and around Bethlehem who saw their young children slaughtered. Think about the words of old Simeon to Mary, a sword will pierce through your own soul as we remember that five years ago at this time, Sandy Hook took place. Think about when the ba- what the baby came to do, to die on a cross for us. Sure, Christmas is about joy, but it is a joy that has reached through and never lost sight of human suffering in a fallen world. As we sing that glorious carol, Joy to the World, we proclaim that Christ comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. There is joy in Christmas, even in the midst of the curse, amen? You see, Christmas joy is for those who hurt, those who dwell in darkness. Scripture says they will see a great light. As Jesus said, it is the hungry who will be filled, those who mourn who will rejoice. So do you hurt? Then rejoice in the baby who has redeemed your sin and suffering. Are you in darkness? Look to his light and rejoice in it. Suffering is the reason for the season. 
Bet you haven't heard that on a Christmas card. As Christ came amid suffering because we suffer to suffer. But our joy lies in the fact that Christ's redemptive suffering points to an eternal weight of glory. Amen? Earth has no sorrow that heaven cannot heal, Thomas More once said. And the certainty of that day when we reach heaven is what alleviates our anxiety in this day when we struggle and we groan and we sigh. Heaven is God's answer to all of our human longing. That is the Christian's hope. That was Paul's hope. And it helps to lessen our groaning and it would never would have been possible unless Christ had been born. British writer H.G. Wells never hid his dissatisfaction with the trajectory of mankind and the spiraling down of society, voicing his skepticism. He once said, quote, man who began in a cave behind a windbreak will end in the diseased, soaked ruins of a slum, unquote. That's not very positive, is it? But that's what the world without Christ sees. But because Jesus came, the Apostle Paul had no such skepticism. True, he saw the effects of man's sin on the world, but he never let his eyes wander from the breaking horizon of God's redeeming power. Because the end of the story, at the end of the story for Paul, there was a present hope. There was a sense of peace. There could be a spirit of joy. These are the themes that we celebrate at Advent, isn't, aren't they? Hope, peace, joy. These are the themes. And because of that, Paul's life was not a depressing wait for the inevitability of death, but, but rather, as one man has suggested, an eager anticipation of the liberation, a renovation, and a recreation brought about by the glory and power of God. Paul's life, was not a weary, defeated waiting. It was a throbbing, vivid expectation. I like that. Is that your outlook this Christmas? A throbbing, vivid expectation? I know, we groan, we sigh, we grapple with the way things are. What about it? Paul says, don't obsess over the groans. You're not going to even remember them two seconds after you're in heaven. The glory of our future is going to far outweigh the groaning of the present. In fact, it's incomparable, Paul says. There isn't a scale devised that could accurately reflect that difference. It's off the chart. It's off the chain, right? And that fact can impact our lives right now, today, shouldn't it? Shouldn't it? But is it? What are your eyes trained on today? Your present groanings or your promised glory? I know. I don't necessarily walk in your shoes. But Jesus did. And Paul also knows how we suffer. Paul knows. He's been there. He's done that. He bought the tunic. (laughs) I knew you'd get a kick out of that. This is a, a man who knows exactly what he's talking about. 
We just read it in Romans 8, but look at 2 Corinthians chapter 4 for a moment. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. In verse 8, Paul says, We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not despairing, persecuted, not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus so that, in, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. Verse 16. Therefore, we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction, momentary light affliction, is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. What cracks me up about Paul is what he calls light affliction. Light affliction. Are you kidding me? Look at a couple of chapters over in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Look at verse 24 for a moment. This is Paul's light affliction, right? Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A day and a night I have spent in the deep. I have been on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights in hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. And apart from such external things, there is the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. Are you kidding? This is light affliction? Wow. What do I have to complain about? In fact, what do you have to complain about? But let's not minimize it, okay? Our pain is real. But guess what? God's promise is sure. It's still good. Paul lays the whole thing out for us in Romans chapter 8, verses 18 to 25. Let's work down through this a little bit as we go. First, I want you to look at the incomparable truth in verse 18. Verse 18, for I consider, Paul says, I consider, I'm convinced, this is incredible to me, Paul says that he's thought about it long and hard, even after all he's been through, and has arrived at the conclusion that the sufferings of the now, whatever we who follow Christ suffer now, is not even worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us and to us in eternity. No comparison, he says. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Think about that for a minute, would you? When he was not imprisoned, when his ship was not sinking, when he was not being stoned or robbed, Paul was being beaten within an inch of his life. And still, he says, I'm absolutely convinced that it's nothing in comparison to what the blessings are that lie ahead for me. That's a pretty good blessing. In other words, in the midst of his groans, he was looking somewhere beyond his situation. He was looking to heaven. Are you? Granted, most of us don't. I mean, you say we do. But as believers, we tend to agree with the truth of what Paul is talking about here. But we still have a very hard time maintaining our practical composure when everything hits us. 
I think Judge Robert Bork expresses well the way that we feel in this simple limerick. God's plan made a hopeful beginning, but man spoiled his chances by sinning. We trust that the story will end in God's glory, but at present, the other side's winning. Well, it may seem like the other side's winning, but it isn't. And God's word in both the Old Testament and the New Testament reassures us that it will end in God's glory in Isaiah chapter 20. I love the way this works. Isaiah chapter 25, verse 6. The Lord of hosts will prepare a lavish banquet for all peoples on this mountain. A banquet of aged wine, choice pieces with marrow and refined aged wine. If you don't drink now, you're going to get to in heaven. <laughs> and it won't be bad thing. Right? And on this mountain, we will swallow up the covering which is over all the people, even the veil which is stretched over all the nations. He will swallow up death for all time. Get that? Underline that. And the Lord God will wipe tears away from all faces. Underline that one too. And he will remove the reproach of his people from all the earth for the Lord has spoken and it will be said in that day, behold, this is our God for whom we've waited that he might save us. This is the Lord for whom we have waited. Let us what? Rejoice. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. So that's the Old Testament. Now we've got a New Testament counterpart, Revelation 21. Verses one to five. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and, the, and God himself will be among them. Here it is. And he will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write this, for these words are faithful and true. Old Testament, New Testament. Not only that, but the glory that will be completely uncovered and make its appearance not only to us, will also be in us. And when will that happen? at Christ's return. We'll see it in ourselves. We'll see it in each other. The angels will behold it in us as well. In the, book of, in the letter of Colossians, Paul wrote to the Colossians in chapter three, verse four, when Christ who is our life is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. First John chapter three and verse two. Some of you are very familiar with this verse. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be, but we know that when he appears, we'll be like him because we will see him just as he is. We're going to be like Jesus. You're going to be like Jesus. If you're a Christian, turn to the person next to you. Look them in the eye and say, I'm not yet what I will be, 
but one day I shall be. That's good news, right? That's good news. That's a great reassurance. But how does it apply to us? Well, here's the relevance of it in, uh, in Romans chapter 8, again, verse 18, that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared. The fact is, suffering, affliction, daily struggles, and pain, they're all part of life in this world. And as Christians, Jesus never promised we'd escape it. And contrary to the erroneous and unbiblical teachings of some today, it's a given. There's no question. Paul assumed it in verse 17 here. Jesus assured that we would have tribulation in this world in John 16, 33. Peter said that we can actually be blessed by it in 1 Peter 4, 12 and 13. And later on in Romans 8, Paul asserts that God has a good purpose for it, right? 8, 28, 29. For all things work together for good. But right now, there are sufferings. They are traumatic for those without Christ. But for those who have a heaven in their future, they're mere trivialities in comparison to the glory that awaits them, says Paul. Nevertheless, we cannot escape the undeniable tension. The undeniable tension. Look at verse 19. For the anxious longing of creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. J.B. Phillips captures the essence of what this verse says in his translation when he says, the whole creation is on tiptoe to see the wonderful sight of the sons of God coming into their own. I like that. Now picture the entire non-rational created universe. Okay? Picture in your minds, plants, trees, Animals, nature, being on the edge of their seats, craning their necks in suspense, in anxious anticipation of the consummation of yours, my salvation. When all things will become new, according to Isaiah 65. When creation will no longer be caught in the downward spiral of decay and, and death. When the world will undergo a complete renovation. We're not the only ones who long for that day of liberation. Right here, Paul says, all of creation longs for it too. And you might be asking yourself, can creation really long for the day of our salvation? And you sound like you're getting a little whacked out, Pastor. You're going to join one of those tree-hugging groups, aren't you? (laughs) Well, you have to ask the tree's permission before you cut it down to heat your house. I'm sorry, I don't mean to disrespect anybody. Scripture says, Scripture says, this is all going to make a point. Scripture says that the seas will give praise in Psalm 69. The fields will exult. The trees can rejoice in Psalm 96. Rivers clap their hands in Psalm 98. By the way, Psalm 98 was the basis for the, for the song we sing, Joy to the World. That's not really a Christmas song, by the way. It's a song about the second coming of Christ. The wilderness can be glad, Isaiah said in chapter 35, and the mountains can burst into shouts of joy, Isaiah 55, 12 says. The literary device there that's being used is called personification because the restoration of creation is uniquely tied to our own ultimate glorification. Paul sees the creation as anxiously waiting on us. 
to be complete. You see, because of our sin, all of creation has been subjected to the next thing Paul deals with, an unrelenting tyranny, verses 20 and 21. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption. You know what's going on here? As long as we are on earth, we, both we and the earth, will long for heaven. Why? Because the tyranny began with man's sin. That's what it says right there in verse 20. It began with us. It was subjected, creation was subjected to it because of our sin. Creation had no choice. When Adam and Eve sinned, the creation fell under a curse. You can read that in Genesis 3. And so death came into the picture. The downward spiral began. Creation now would work in another direction. Thorns would grow. Thistles would thrive. Violence would erupt. Plants become poisonous. Animals vicious. And the beauty of nature now often erupts into floods, earthquakes, tornadoes, droughts, blights, and avalanches. Physics has formulated a law of entropy, which describes the constant and irreversible degradation of matter and energy into a decreasing, I mean, an increasing disorder. While science may have uncovered that fact, it was God who unleashed it. That's what it says in verse 20. And it was our sin that caused it. It says that too. So face it, folks, creation is not evolving into something better. God has subjected creation to futility. The word means aimlessness, the inability to reach the goal or achieve the desired results. No matter how intelligent you and I become, no matter how intelligent science becomes or organized we are, no matter how promising our technological progress there is this sense of futility. You feel that? Some, something always thwarts the order. Just leave three quiet three-year-olds in a room together and watch how fast it disintegrates into disorder. That's assuming you can get them quiet to begin with. The NIV uses the word frustration in place of futility. You and I and all of creation are subject to the frustration of life under the sun. Without the hope of Christ, we are often overtaken by a sense of meaninglessness. Patrick Morley writes, frustration is different than evil. Don't mix the two. While evil is that which is wicked, frustration is simply that which is pointless. It makes us cry out, what's the point? What's it all about? Is this all there is? Have you ever fr- sensed that frustration in your life? Well, creation is fraught with it. See, the full potential inherent in God's creation is never reached. It is not as it was before Adam sinned. But there's another interesting point tucked away in verse 20 here. Notice from where the frustration and the futility comes. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of who? Him who subjected it. Him who subjected it. It wasn't by choice, it was by the will of God. 
Morley continues, God doesn't just allow frustration and futility, but he actually causes it. But why would he do that, you're asking? Because frustration is a gracious gesture to deliver us. When we feel the full weight of how futile the world is, guess what we do? We cry out to God for deliverance. And all of creation cries out for it. It waits on tiptoe for the day when the curse is totally removed from mankind. Not Because not only will we be liberated from sin's restraints, but all of creation will be set free as well and become all that God intended it to be. Think about, think about the song again. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found, far as the curse is found, far as, far as the curse is found. See, the tyranny began with man's sin, but the tyranny will end with man's salvation in hope that the creation, verse 21, itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. That's why as good as environmental concerns are and as hard as organizations try to turn the tide of the corruption and devastation, both man and earth, decay, disease, pollution, entropy will never cease until God removes the curse. The destiny of the earth as is the destiny of man, lies completely in the hands of God. Donald Gray Barnhouse said it decades ago. He said, quote, the creation will not be at rest until the plan of God is fulfilled. Then the hope of verse 21 will be realized. And Isaiah hints at it yet again in Isaiah chapter 11 in verse 6. And the wolf will dwell with the lamb. The leopard will lay down with the young goat. The calf and the young lion and the fatling together. And a little boy will lead them. The cow and the bear will graze. Their young will lie down together. And the lion will eat straw like the ox. The nursing child will play by the hole of the cobra. And the weaned child will put its hand on the viper's den. They will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. What a day that's going to be, huh? In the late 1960s, Joni Mitchell wrote Woodstock. What some consider to be an anthem for a lost and groaning generation. Listen to a few of her words in that song. We are stardust, we are golden, caught up in the devil's bargain. And we've got to get ourselves back to the garden. We've got to get ourselves back to a semblance of a God. Sounds like the groans of a lost world to me. Problem is that most people think that all they need to do is get back to the garden and everything's going to be fine. But in this life, that's not going to happen. As someone said, as they say, you can't unscramble an egg. You can't rewrite history. We can't go back. We don't live in a garden anymore. The world is no picnic. It's a briar patch, a rocky field, and a concrete jungle. Unquote. Well, the fact is that it's not the garden we need, is it? 
goes way beyond that. It's the God who created the garden that we need. That's who we need to get back to. If people today were able to be transported back into that perfect place, they would be perfectly miserable. Why? Because there's a God-shaped hole in all of our hearts. And if that's not filled with God, no perfect environment is going to do anything for you. Not at all, because the emptiness that needs to be filled can only be filled by the presence of God himself, and that's why Christ was born. That's why God came near. That's why love came down. Because God, not the garden, is what we all need. And that is why even as Christians, we groan. Because we know what we're missing, right? We have a taste of it by the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And we want more. Not more of the Spirit, but we long for the process to be complete. We want more of this process to be done. We understand what Paul is talking about in verses 22 and 23 when he says, For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but we also ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. We have the Holy Spirit, but we don't have spiritual bodies yet, do we? We've got a frantic struggle on our hands, don't we? Paul says it's like a woman in the throes of transition, groaning to have the baby out. You women have had babies, you know what that's like, right? Just get me delivered. We groan and the creation groans, Paul says, like a woman in labor. We want to be delivered. And you understand that. Others of us have only an inkling what that means. For indeed in this house, our bodies, we groan, Paul says, longing to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling. That's 2 Corinthians. Have you ever felt that way when you watch the news? Or when you're really hurting, or even when you try to pray, you got back problems especially, but can't find the words, the whole creation feels that way, you know. It's like Paul felt that way too. Even Jesus felt that way. Jesus felt that way. In Mark chapter 7, in verse 31, the situation that happened here, again, Jesus went from the region of Tyre and came through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee within the region of Decapolis. They brought to him one who was deaf and spoke with difficulty, and they implored him to lay his hand on them, on him. And Jesus took him aside from the crowd by himself, put his fingers into his ears, and after spitting, he touched his tongue with the saliva. And then it says in verse 34, looking up to heaven with a deep sigh, Jesus said to him, Ephatha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened. But Jesus sighed, groaned. It's the same word that Paul uses in Romans 8. He looked up to heaven and he groaned. Ever wonder why Jesus did that? Why Mark recorded that? For the same reason that we do and all of creation does. Because Jesus himself even longed for the day when pain that was never intended is removed. When hope is no longer deferred, but embraced. Now, I have pictures of my wife when she was pregnant for our children. 
Most of you husbands probably do too. And then I have pictures of my wife after the birth with our children. And you likely do too. After the baby was delivered, radiant, cradling the baby in your arms or in her arms, right? But unless I miss my guess, not many of you probably have pictures of your wives in labor. (laughs) You don't grab your cell phone and say, hey, hey, let me show you a picture of my wife in labor. Isn't that agony great? You don't do that. You'd die if you did. (laughs) Your wife would have no part of that. See, we groan longing for the delivery. That's the picture we need to have in our minds. The message, I love the way the message translates, uh, paraphrases verses 22 to 25 here. All around us, we observe a pregnant creation. The difficult times of pain throughout the world are simply birth pangs. But it's not only around us, it's within us. The Spirit of God is arousing us within, and we're also feeling the birth pangs. These sterile and barren bodies of ours are yearning for full deliverance. That is why waiting does not diminish us any more than waiting diminishes a pregnant, pregnant mother. We are enlarged in the waiting. We, of course, don't see what's enlarging us, but the longer we wait, the larger we become and the more joyful our expectancy. I like that. It was for the joy that was set before Jesus that allowed him to endure the cross and despise the shame. It's for the heaven that awaits us that we endure the groaning on this earth. It's the beauty of that day that alleviates the anxiety of today. True, we've got a frantic struggle on our hands, but the flip side is we've got the first fruits in our hearts. We've got the Spirit, right? We have the Holy Spirit. That's what Paul says here in verse 23. And because he lives in us, we've gotten a taste of what it will be like to continually be in the presence of God forever. We've got this inkling of what it will be like to have full joy and be pure. He is the first installment of our future glory. He's been given to us as a pledge, a guarantee of the delivery of the whole eternal package. He's our security. And we are reminded that because of Christ's coming, we've got a full boat on the horizon, don't we? Full boat on the horizon. We waiting eagerly for the adoption of sons, our adoption, the redemption of our body. We long for that day. And that's what keeps us sane, Paul says. What propels us on through the groans and the sighs is finally the hope of an unequaled treasure. Verses 24 and 25, for in hope we have been saved. But hope that seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance, we wait eagerly for it. Someone has said that hope is hearing the melody of the future. Faith is to dance to it in the present. Writer of Hebrews said this, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Your salvation, if you have received Christ, is a fact. Your glorification is just as much a fact, amen? So, are you dancing to the hope? I read in France that in France, if a man is introduced to a woman who is an expectant mother, 
He reacts differently to her than we do in America. In America, people tend to ignore the obvious fact that a woman is with child. They don't know what to say. In France, however, it is the height of politeness for him to congratulate her in a certain manner. I'm going to botch this. I know I am. But she might, someone might say to her, Je vous félicite de votre espérance. Which means, I congratulate you on your hope. Isn't that nice? I think I'm going to learn that phrase and just tell every pregnant woman I see that. <laughs> they won't know if I'm insulting them or not, see? So, unless they're French, then, then they'll be glad. As a pregnant woman anxiously anticipates bearing a child, so a believer awaits the day when he or she will bear the full image of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Our hope is that when we see him, we will be like him. And everyone who has his hope fixed on him purifies himself even as he himself is pure. So my question to you is, as we close, has anybody anybody congratulated you on your hope lately? Are you pregnant with the hope of eternal life? Because that's what the joy of Christmas is all about. We are agents of his kingdom, ambassadors for Christ. One man put it like this, we bring life where there is death, light where there is darkness, hope where there is despair. We sang about it this morning. Great are you, Lord. The problem, of course, is that we are all subject to the daily aches and pains of living in a world held hostage by sin. Yet if we, his ambassadors, appear without hope, what hope can that give to other people who haven't got Christ? What message are you sending? We are ambassadors of the kingdom, not pallbearers of the kingdom. Someone once said that God calls us to become the live demonstration of what's happening already in heaven. That way, anytime someone wants to know what's going on in heaven, all they have to do is check in with us. That's a high call, isn't it? Is that what people do with you? Yeah, there's undeniable tension and unrelenting tyranny, and we're all in travail until Christ comes again, but we have this incomparable truth of an unequaled treasure because what we feel now, we will not always feel. Our disappointment is itself a sign, an aching, a hunger for something better. And faith is, in the end, Philip Yancey says, a kind of homesickness, homesickness for a home that we have never visited but have never stopped longing for. That's Christmas. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord. Thanks for this passage of Scripture that even though in the midst of it seems kind of down, really yields to great joy, the joy of heaven, the joy of the full redemption of our bodies. When we can say with all of creation, great are you, Lord. Thank you for this word. Apply it to our hearts and soothe our souls by it, we pray. In Jesus' holy and precious name, amen.